one of the great achievements of modern science is the erection of the theory of evolution, and more particularly the Darwinian slant on the nature of evolutionary process. And we will be discussing that tonight with two people who have focused on the history of uh, that realm in scientific theory development. Uh, they are both of them professors of history and philosophy of science. From the University of Chicago, Robert Richards, who has done uh, many books on this subject. From uh, Florida State University, Michael Roos, who um, has done among his books uh, are these titles, Evolution and Its Values, Is Science a Social Construction? And Can a Darwinian Be a Christian? The Relationship Between Science and Religion. I imagine we'll get to that persisting question, that very American question, a little bit later. But to begin with, uh, Robert, is it not the case that the basic idea of evolution, that there's a continuity between life forms from the simplest to the more complex, uh, exists long before and is elaborated long before Darwin writes uh, either of his two major books. Well, there are different kinds of construction of that idea, but you certainly find a notion uh, in the 18th century of the great chain of being, of course, mm -hmm. where organisms are uh, uh, spread out in a kind of hierarchy from lowest to highest. And that gets um, uh, temporalized uh, by the late 18th century and into the early 19th, both by people like um, Lamarck, and most particularly by Erasmus Darwin, Charles' grandfather, yeah. so that there were evolutionary ideas prior to Darwin, but Darwin added something special to those conceptions. But so did his grandfather. His grandfather laid that out in a long volume about uh, the relation between various organisms from the lowest to the highest, but he did it in verse. Well, he, he, he had one called the Botanical Garden on the one hand, but then another treatise uh, on zoology called Zoonomia on the other, in which he does produce those ideas. That's quite so. But couldn't you go much uh, farther back, uh, or further back as the case may be? Uh, what I have in mind is um, Lucretius and uh, on De Rarum Natura. Well, you uh, could go back even before that, can't you? You could go back to the ancient Greeks and to Democritus mm -hmm. and the atomists in a before even the, the time of, of Plato and Socrates. They all say life is some, various yeah. forms of life are linked. R right, but don't forget, I mean, what these people argued was that there was a sort of all of these atoms in infinite void, infinite time, infinite space, and that every now and then these things would start to cohere. So eventually, given infinite time, infinite space, you're going to get an arm over here and a leg over there, and then these would sort of cohere. And so, But, of course, most of the time it wouldn't work. You know, you'd have sort of a... You know, three arms, two legs, no head, and two backsides, and it just wouldn't function. But it, given infinite time, infinite space, you'd, you know, my God, you might even get Bob Richards produced. But don't forget, this isn't really that a... That would be a happy Happy, <laughs> yeah, right, well. <laughs> but uh, don't forget, this isn't really an evolutionary idea, because they weren't arguing that everything comes up from blobs or, or something like that. What they were arguing was that Bob Richards would would come together from all of those molecules mm. or those atoms just cohering. So one day you don't have anything, and the next day you've got Bob doing history and philosophy of science. There's a fellow out on the lawn of, of the University of Chicago. Linnaeus. Uh, Linnaeus, uh, the great uh, taxonomist, one would say. But in, in Linnaean theory, and what are Linnaeus's dates, by the way? Well, he's mid-18th century. Mid-18th. Uh, in his uh, classifications of all the different forms of life, uh, how close does he come to the notion that they are 
continuous and connected. Well, he does come uh, at the end of his career. Uh, he sees the ways in which certain species seem to have given rise to others. He's mostly in uh, botanical species, as he notes. Mm. And he comes to a notion that God perhaps created certain large types, but after they were created, then natural processes produced the various species that we're familiar with. Um, Buffon, uh, Georges Leclerc Comte de Buffon, had a similar idea roughly at about the same time. So these, these proto-evolutionary ideas and notions on the way to a more expressed form of evolution that you find, for example, in Darwin, uh, certainly they, they occur right through uh, uh, the period prior to Darwin. One of the most interesting things about Darwin is that he has a parallel, uh, namely uh, Wallace. And it's argued by some uh, sociologists of science that where you get parallel independent invention or parallel independent discovery, discovery that demonstrates, or that is the the sign that the, the time robust is robust theory. The time the and that theory. the time is ripe, and the, th the theory is going to emerge uh, regardless regardless yeah. of what person lives or dies and theorizes or doesn't. Well, yes, except of course, don't forget that when Darwin published his ideas in 1859, uh, in fact, they weren't picked up then. I mean, they weren't made part of sort of overall evolutionary theory even until the 1930s. Well, no, wait a minute. Hold it, Michael. That, I mean, there was a, a view by Darwin's death, virtually every naturalist would have signed on to the transmutation of species. Absolutely. Okay. No, you're quite right. But because that's not, not Darwin Wallace's discovery, is it? You're talking about the mechanism of evolution. Right, right. Natural selection, uh, right? So I mean, this is—I mean, this would be the parallel between Darwin and Wallace. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I mean, the time was ripe. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, because your, your hero Herbert Spencer also thought it up, didn't he? Um, he and, but influenced by someone like Lamarck, and there was Robert Chambers in 1844. Right. So that there were the these kinds of antecedents, and you're perfectly right. It, there were. Mm efforts in this direction, but Darwin certainly made it um, acceptable, I think, for many people, and the ways in which Chambers and Lamarck and Erasmus Darwin... Well, now, what exactly did Darwin make acceptable? He made acceptable, at least initially, the notion that over long periods of time, one kind of organism gave rise to descended organisms that were morphologically different. They had different structures, so that one species initially, or several species initially, gave rise to a whole multitude of rather different looking species um, through the course of time. So that, that became really quite well accepted as the result of the origin of species. Well, it wasn't just the origin. I mean, it was the origin, but I think it would be a mistake, and I'm sure you'd agree with me on this, Bob. It wasn't just the ideas. I think also Darwin's status uh, played a big role here. I mean, Darwin wasn't just, you know, somebody that no one had ever heard of. He, by this, by the end of the 1850s, he was a very well-respected scientist, and That's he was true. also Darwin of the Beagle. In the, in the, the 1840s, he'd written this very popular travel book. I mean, yep. he was kind of, you know, almost like a Bill Bryson, no, but more oh, serious. A little, a little bit more than Bill Bryson. Oh, well, uh, no, you can't be more than Bill Bryson. He's a wonderful writer. I mean, um, but he was, yeah, I mean, he was, I mean, he was very well-respected as, as, as a as a writer, as a travel writer in a time when, of course, when exploration, geography was a big thing. So Darwin had a kind of status. So when he published on it, 
and a very respectable scientist, good, no. good man with lots of big family and everything. As a somewhat disillusioned college professor, I'm always troubled when some references are made that would be easily available to any intelligent and educated adult, but I worry whether some of the younger listeners don't know the reference. And in this case, the Beagle is a reference which uh, might need explaining to some of our listeners. Well, um, Darwin, as a young man just out of college, he went to Cambridge, he was headed for the ministry. He was going to be a parson because this is what was available to the younger sons of the gentry. And Darwin himself was not a great student at Cambridge. And so the father certainly thought that this was an appropriate kind of activity for the kid. Uh, but he had the opportunity to uh, become a um, surveyor, or at least help with surveying on a ship that was going to sail initially for a year or two to South America to chart, chart the waters off the coast of South America for British trade. Um, that was altered. He um, was hired certainly as a, a companion to the, the captain of the ship, Fitzroy, Robert Fitzroy. Uh, but he did a lot of geological surveying along the trip. And the trip was extended for five years. And so Darwin traveled along the coast of South America, up and down both the, uh, the East Coast and the West Coast, to the Galapagos Islands, where he made certain important observations about really quite unusual figures. He was sending home um, his discoveries, that is, reports of them, as well as uh, different kinds of fossil bones that he had found. He had found a very large megatherium, which is a giant sloth size of a rhinoceros, so those, that was all carted back and sent to London. Uh, he traveled completely around the world. He went to uh, Australia and then back to South America and finally back to London in a five-year voyage. And I think the, the common consensus is on that voyage, he really hadn't changed his mind about the stability of species. There may have been some doubts about that, but he was still pretty much of a con uh, an orthodox biologist during the trip. When he got back, uh, he started cataloging his species, the things that he had brought back, among which were certain kinds of species, um, uh, mockingbirds, for example, which he thought uh, initially had to be um, related to one another. Uh, that he, he had an understanding of how they arrived on the Galapagos Islands. These were Galapagos mockingbirds, that they had blown over from the mainland, and that they had varied slightly, but they were seen as variations of one species, or at least that's how he thought about them. When he brought them back to, to England, he had one of the chief ornithologists, John Gould, of, um, uh, in, in London at the time, uh, tell Darwin that these were actually good species. So on the one hand, Darwin had a notion of how these organisms got to the Galapagos. He, know, he knew that they had changed um, because of their environmental circumstances, but he didn't think they had changed that much, but then when an independent viewer looked at them, John Gould, he decided that these were good species. And this seemed to have triggered a lot of notions that Darwin had been harboring. And virtually from that point on, he started working out what he saw as a theory of the transmutation of species. And that is where we will continue. The, his version of a theory uh, explaining the transmutation well, of initially, species. But we have to do, do that right after we pause for we some commercials, which are coming instantly, and then directly back to Robert Richards and to Michael Ruse.
And so we come, I say, to Robert Richards and Michael Roos, both of them professors of the history and philosophy of science, and both of them very involved in understanding evolutionary theory, and for that matter, sorting out the wheat from the chaff when it comes to uh, the content of evolutionary thought these days. And so I say to either or both of you, what then exactly was the Darwinian idea uh, about how uh, the species, uh, one species transmutes into another, or uh, ultimately transmutes into many others, so that we have a chain of life from protoplasmal uh, single-celled creatures uh, on to uh, the ultimate creation, or rather the ultimate evolved creature, man. Well, as Darwin returned from the Beagle and had convinced himself that species did change over time, uh, part of his effort then was to try to discover how that occurred, what were the um, agencies, what were the mechanisms by which it occurred, and he developed several different kinds, many of them quite similar to those that another biologist earlier, Lamarck, had suggested. But then in about 1838, he, through reading of Thomas Malthus and a few other things, he had been thinking about one way of doing it, and Malthus seems to have helped him put together certain ideas they congealed, and the, the product of that was what he called natural selection. And natural selection is simply the notion that in among organisms they vary so if you consider a litter of puppies uh, that a dog might have those puppies will vary one from the other although they may they're all siblings one of the other there'll be slightly mm -hmm. different traits so if you can imagine let's say in a particular environment a slightly longer tail would give one of the would give those puppies an advantage and in such a litter there's going to be one that will have a slightly longer tail and if you multiply that over many different uh, groups of dogs, um, those would be what Darwin would say selected for giving the animal an advantage so that it could reach reproductive age and then pass on those traits to. But illustrate this just a little bit further. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's purely hypothetical, all the same, make up a, hypo a hypothetical answer to the following question: Why would a somewhat longer tail give you an advantage? Well, it might be it gives you greater stability in running after prey. Mm -hmm. So that would be one reason. Um, or escaping from prey. Or escaping, escaping from, from prey. So animals that treat you as prey. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So any kind of advantage that might be had in um, the course of one's existence, and given that a lot, many more creatures uh, come into the world than can possibly be sustained by the resources of the world, that those that have the slight advantage by reason of slight differences that they exhibit uh, will have the advantage. They'll pass on those traits to their offspring, and gradually over time, says Darwin, the whole species of, say, dogs or whatever it happens to be, will gradually change. And you can see this at work in a, a lot of different uh, instances. We do it all the time with domestic species. We change, for example, dogs. They come, mm -hmm. you know, the Chihuahua and the Great Dane ultimately derived from an organism that was probably the size of a Cocker Spaniel. But it's through selective processes that those changes... But in this case, it wasn't wrong. nature, so-called, that was doing the, uh, the shaping. It was human beings who were breeding the animals That's right. But that's, of course, not really essential that it was human beings. They just yeah. happened to put the conditions under which some animals would survive and others would not. And it was those animals that had the traits that human beings happened to like. Here are the words of the Master um, from Origin of Species. I have called this principle by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved by the term of natural selection. The expression often used by Mr. Herbert Spencer of the survival of the fittest is more accurate and is sometimes equally convenient. Does that strike you as uh, 
an enunciation which holds to this day? Well, um, good question. I mean, certainly natural selection. And that's, that, of course, is the phrase that Darwin used. And then he added survival of the fittest, which, as you say, was Spencer's phrase. The trouble is people say, what is the fittest? Well, the fittest are those that survive. And doesn't this mean that natural selection is just a tautology, you know, just a truism? Those that survive are those that survive. So, um, it, you know, I'm sounding a bit like a professor now, I realize. But, well, in um, fact, let, let's face it, you are. Yeah, well, that's what I am. And that's, what, that's why you're paying me a huge honorarium to appear on your show. Um, but a rather uh, fanciful professor, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you mean, you mean no money? <laughs> I'm done. I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so, uh, but certainly natural selection, and I, I, it would seem to be that what Darwin hit on then is not only right then, but it's right now. And I would go further. I would say that it's the main cause of evolu evolutionary change then, now, and always was. So would it follow then that every trait you find in a particular successfully adapted species? has had survival value. No, so uh, explain to me why we have earlobes. Well, it, it may not be that every trait that we have has survival value, but it may be that it's just simply carried along with other traits closely associated that in fact do have survival value. Thank you, Milt. I wouldn't find you anything like a sexy if you didn't have earlobes. So, you know, don't, really? don't, don't knock them. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, I'm not no, saying, I mean, no. I'm not saying ears. They no, I know what you're saying, but, but don't these, forget, don't forget. These droopy appendages Right, but don't, ear, don't, they, forget, don't forget that what is what counts is a characteristic which is going to mean that you're going to put more babies into the next generation mm. than others. So earlobes have nothing to do so with it does, Well, no, it doesn't necessarily mean just being strong and healthy like Tarzan. I mean, it could be having a bigger sex drive, for instance, mm -hmm. sure, or an ability relevant. to eat less food and to get by. And of course, also, and this is what Darwin called his secondary mechanism, sexual selection, namely physical characteristics and, and how you look. I mean, if you're very healthy but as ugly as hell, um, you're just not going to turn the girls on. Now, I don't know what you'd look like without earlobes, and I'm not, you know... But it may, not, it may not be that earlobes themselves are traits. They may be, in fact, just the consequence of the selection of other traits mm -hmm. that do have survival value. So the fact that we can hear and we have an appendage that captures sound, that certainly has survival value. And the complex of traits like that have other consequences that don't have any particular use, but they're just a automatic consequence of having two different traits of a certain character. Now, I think that this is the point, of course, where we're really starting to get to the contentious stuff today, is whether or not every trait, or if not every trait, basically the presumption is that any trait would have some survival value, or whether or not there's an awful lot which doesn't. I mean, and this, of course, has been the thing which has, divide, has divided and does divide evolutionists today. I mean, on the one hand, you've got somebody like Richard Dawkins, the English evolutionist, who basically who has been wants on this to, program a few times. Actually. Well, right. Well, jolly good. Uh, who, you know, who says selection rules okay. Uh, not necessarily that everything is selected, but that's the presumption. Whereas you've got somebody like Stephen Jay Gould, and I'm sure you had him on the program yes, too. Yeah. Uh, who wanted to say, no, no, sure, there are adaptive characteristics. Nobody's saying that eyes aren't adaptive, but don't presume that everything or even the majority of things have an adaptive value. The fact that, for instance, we've got white skins rather than black or that we're hairless rather than hairy or whatever it might be, maybe these are just byproducts. 
But I in mean, those particular instances, they're probably not byproducts. No, but Gould would at of... least uh, entertain, entertain the hypothesis that an awful lot of them are, whereas Dawkins, well, and let's be honest, Michael Roos, would say, no, I'm inclined to look for selective value, you know, generally. I mean, well, I you, you just named a major and interesting variant between different groups of human beings, skin color, pigmentation. Uh, if you look for selective value, uh, and if we acknowledge that the uh, that the record seems to indicate that uh, the human species originates in Africa and comes out of Africa uh, and must have developed pigment variation, pigmentation variation later, what then would be the selective value of uh, those groups that flourished in Europe being pink-skinned, those that are or in vitamin Africa? vitamin D. Uh, that is, you absorb uh, from the sun. You, you need a certain amount of sun for vitamin D production yes. in the human body. But in uh, northern climates, you get a lot less than you do in southern climates. Mm -hmm. There you need protection from the rays of the sun, and melanin in the skin offers that protection. Yeah. So uh, people with melanin in the skin in northern climates would have had lower survival potential? Well, over a, not today because we put vitamin D in yeah. milk and we substitute, uh, you know, we provide But in primeval times, so In primeval times, yeah, sure. And don't and forget would have died before they could have bred right, right. over long periods of time. Yeah. It's not just humans, of course, which which uh, obey or follow this rule mm -hmm. of darker close to the equator. I mean, it's a it's a it's a characteristic in other animals as well. Right. I mean, we're not we're not the only ones that show this particular feature. A physical anthropologist that I was talking to once, uh, and again about so-called racial differences, uh, and I raised the question of the epicanthic fold in uh, people of uh, Asian right. origin. And uh, he said, well, that's quite recent, you know. And I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, yes, it probably wasn't there 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense to me, not 2,000 years ago. No, Maybe, uh, 2, uh, you know, 200,000 years yeah. or something like that. Yeah. What would be an explanation of that particular variation? Well, you know, what, what you're now doing, Milt, which is okay to do, is to take a, a trait and try to figure out what might have given rise to it long time what ago. What adaptive value it what might have had. What adaptive value yeah. it might have had. And you can... In some, you can be a little more certain than others, and some you can only speculate. In the case of uh, that particular fold of skin by the eye, it is thought, I think, it adds protection from the cold. And if you're riding mm -hmm. horses in the Georgian steppes, mm -hmm. or uh, if you're a Mongol riding in those areas, then that kind of protection might be quite helpful. I think I, I think I misremember. The, this fellow might have said 20,000 years ago. Well, his point well, was, that's, that's his argument... It's not... It's, it, yes, it but, was But the basis reason. of his argument was that uh, Amerindians, uh, Native Americans, so-called, who came over from right. Asia, don't have the epicanthic fold, that thereby suggesting that it developed after their migration. It's possible, or it could have been, you know, the effect of selection brought it on afterwards. Maybe they lost it. I mean, don't yeah. forget, mm -hmm. evolution doesn't necessarily mean always going the one way. Uh, you, you can go the other way, too, and sometimes organisms have gotten smaller. Now, it sounds so far that evolutionists, uh, evolutionary theorists, and the uh, working scientists who feed them the data are all in basic agreement as to the, uh, the theoretic model with which they work and with which they interpret uh, the further developments of nature, or the long course of nature. But uh, I know perfectly well that there has been a lot of argument in recent years between one and another kind of evolutionary theorist. There are issues that uh, have been to the front,
but have not yet been apparently fully resolved. One could name certain people. Stephen Gould is surely one of them. Uh, you mentioned uh, Richard Dawkins earlier, who's yet another, who uh, formulate aspects of evolutionary theory which sometimes are rejected by their colleagues. So well, there has been significant argument, and I'm eager to hear what you've got to say about the nature of those arguments and where those controversies stand. We'll go forward with that right after this. And we should reintroduce our guests. They are Michael Roos, professor of the history and philosophy of science at Florida State University, author uh, of, among many other works, Evolution and Its Values. Uh, colon, Is Science a Social Construction? Are, are those, is that one book or two? Uh, well, it, it, it's one book. Um, it's, now called, it, it's now called Mystery of Mysteries, Is Science a Social Construction? I you know, we, I'm afraid we authors tend to chop and change our titles, uh, a bit like wives. And Robert Richards, who is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Chicago, is the author, among other volumes, of The Romantic Conception of Life, Science and Philosophy in the Age of Goethe. That's just about to appear, or has just it appeared? It has appeared last week. University of Chicago Press. Um, that's about your... And it's eighth. a very beautiful book. He's just given me a copy, I'm glad to say. Well, they haven't sent me a copy of it. Uh, they should. I actually asked them to do so. Yeah. That hasn't they're, they're sometimes yet. a little uh, slow on the pickup over there. I've noticed that before. Um, well, the basic question, what controversies have really agitated uh, the great minds in your professional life? What do evolutionary theorists argue about when they argue? Well, <laughs> about many things. I mean, they agree about certain fundamental things, but they argue about others. Uh, first of all, it's, it's how deeply does the genetic structure of human beings control their behavior? So that's one large area. Uh, is it genes all the way down, or is it some kind of uh, greater environmental impact that makes us distinctively human? Um, so what's the A most recent theorizer in that realm, and in fact he appeared on this program only a few weeks ago uh, to uh, flog his new book, and that same book was reviewed by you in the New York Times book review. That recent visitor was Stephen Pinker. That's certainly true. A psychologist who argues for what he calls, what his group call, evolutionary psychology. Well, um, yeah, so he pits, um, really, it's a kind of uh, false dichotomy, I think, that he begins with. But um, uh, he, he pits those who think that human beings come into the world, as it were, with a blank slate, that environment determines all of their behavior against those who think that uh, the genes and our genetic structure have a great deal to do with the behavior that we exhibit. Now, there's probably no one, uh, at least among reputable biologists, uh, who believe that we come into the world without any kind of uh, certain preformation of both traits, anatomical traits, and behavioral traits because of our genetic structure. So that, that might be one sort of problem, I think, with his book. But I don't, I don't want to rehearse a book review for you, but there, the real, I think, difficulty with the point of view that at least he exhibited, and I'm sure he will think it's the difficulty with the point of view that I'm now talking about, uh, is that he downplays the role of the environment in producing the kinds of traits that we all manifest as human beings. But could not the same be said of the sort of modern father of uh, sociobiology, uh, namely uh, Wilson of Harvard? Oh, I think so. I mean, Ed Wilson is, is certainly comes out pretty strong and wants to argue that uh, male-female differences, for instance, are uh, in, in major respect a, a function of the genes. He, I mean, he, at one point he says the twig is bent a bit and, and sort of pulls back, but basically he thinks the reason why 
males tend to be more aggressive, the, the soldiers, the, you know, the success in material terms, whereas women are more, you know, what is it, Kinderkirchkuchen that the Germans say. Mm -hmm. I think Ed would put this down. It, it, Bob said it's the genes all the way down, but it's not just the genes. It's the genes as fashioned or selected by natural <coughs> selection. I mean, it's genes which are going to promote reproductive efficiency at some level. So certainly Wilson would want to argue something of that nature, no question about it. Does, can one find a good argument in favor of uh, the uh, equal temperament for both male and female in any precincts other than among the radical feminists? Silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, is, I, it, is it not the case? No, I mean, look, I mean, the male fact and female created it or no, I mean, the fact is that, that women obviously have a great deal more capacity for doing a great many more things than, let us say, our Victorian forefathers or mm -hmm. foremothers, or certainly forefathers thought. I mean, if you look at Darwin himself, for instance, Darwin uh, and Huxley, his, his bulldog, I mean, Huxley was not in favor of women's uh, university education. He just didn't think women could hack it. And now what, is, what are the figures? 55% of undergraduates are female, 60%. So, I mean, there's no question but that at one level, uh, the environment is, I mean, in, uh, using this in a general term to include education and, and much, I mean, the environment can be overwhelming. I mean, there's no doubt about that. No. No, but, but is it not the case? I fully agree. In, co in terms of cognitive capabilities, uh, there's equality, or if there's any difference, it may favor females as over males. They do score uh, universally uh, when in standard intelligence tests are used. They do score one or two IQ points higher than males do. Uh, and controlling for all the other sources of variance that may indicate a slight disposition towards higher intelligence on the part of females. But what about aggression? Well, what about aggression? The general <laughs> argument is that <laughs> men are, I mean, men are more you. aggressive. I've, than... I've had some pretty aggressive girlfriends in my time. Um, I mean, well, they again, deal with you. I can understand yeah, why you're right. aggressive. I mean, again, surely aggression is, is. I mean, goodness, you're a psychologist. You know that aggression is a term which covers a lot of things, from going over the trenches in the First World yeah. War and killing half a dozen Germans, to passive in, aggression, in non -military where, you, life, where you get your way In non-military life, attacking and beating up people and killing them yeah. is more, far more often done by males than it's by females. It's no accident, I think, that in males all are filled mostly by males as yeah. opposed to females. And and is, is, isn't this a universal across societies? Well, I, I, I presume that it is, I and it's it probably is. not simply a cultural trait. It would be remarkable if sexual dimorphism, that is, our morphological differences from one another, the two sexes, uh, didn't, wasn't deeper than simply that, that it went to our psychological sure. dispositions and cognitive dispositions. Certainly sex sexuality and monogamy versus polygyny. I mean, we are, I mean, we are a classic primate species. The males are slightly larger than the females. We have the the very kinds of characteristics that one would associate with being a, a mildly polygynous species. I mean, it doesn't mean that necessarily all males or all males who succeed are going to be like red deer and have, you know, a, a harem of, of 20 or something like that. But certainly it seems to me that the biology is there to suggest that, you know, what is it? What, was it what your friend William James said something along these lines, didn't he, that man is polygynous, woman monogamous, or, or words to that effect. I mean, certainly this seems to me to be more than just uh, sexist, patriarchal te uh, teaching of young boys when it, 
as they're growing up. Well, that that difference in sexual um, responsiveness to many of the other sex or to only one of the other sex, that difference, in fact, has uh, worked to uh, make us a um, an actively and successfully breeding species, has it not? Uh, well, we've certainly populated the, the Earth pretty well. No, Because men have true. spread the seed around to more than one woman. Well, you know, if there now is we tell them they shouldn't do that. Some well, men. Yeah, but there is a, there's a kind of thesis among sociobiologists that men naturally are more um, ready to inseminate more females. Women have fewer mm -hmm. eggs. Men have uh, a great mm -hmm. many more sperm, and therefore it's economical for women to be more cautious about whom they mate with and to reserve judgment mm -hmm. about males, whereas males, the strategy that males more likely will incorporate is simply to impregnate as many females as possible. At least that, that is suggested as a kind of biological difference that explains uh, what is perhaps common uh, behavior. Of course, a genetic base generates differences in anatomy. Freud said, uh, one of the few things he said that really makes any lasting sense, anatomy is destiny. Uh, do you know the wonderful French pun? It has to be done in French because it's a pun. Uh, quelle est la différence entre l'homme et la femme? And the answer is la différence entre. Uh, playing on the double me. What is the difference between a man and a woman? And entre is between in French. And the answer is la différence entre. Entre is also enters. Uh, the, the difference enters. Surely the difference in, in genital equipment between the male and female sexes in uh, all mammalian species and on through the primates tends to make for differences in other aspects of behavior. Well, that's true, but don't think that all primates, because we're all primates, are going to be exactly the same. I mean, for instance, um, uh, chimpanzees are much more sexually active, for mm -hmm. instance, than gorillas are. Not to mention bonobos. Yes, r right. I mean, so, uh, I mean, one, one's not going to say that because something's a primate that you're going to get identical sexual behavior right the way through. I mean, you've got to look at various, various sorts of differences and look for various sorts of patterns, difference in weight and, and these sorts of things suggesting polygyny versus monogamy. And there's no question, we are not as sexually dimorphic, certainly as all mammals. I mean, we're nothing like as sexually dimorphic, for instance, as, what is it, walruses uh, or, or something like that, or, or, or stags. But we do have a certain, you know, imbalance, if I can use such a term, between males and females. But you know that imbalance is actually changing a little bit. There, there's a particular instance. Well, it may be in your case, Bob, but uh, I'm well, putting on weight flat out. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's not what I had in mind. What I had in mind is sim the simple fact that, at the turn of the century, that is the last century, the differences in height between men and women was about five inches. That men were about five foot five on average, women were about five foot on average. Now men are certainly much taller on average, about five, ten, or eleven. But women now are only about one inch smaller than men. And the question is, in, in both instances, in the American population, men and women have gotten taller, but women have gotten a lot taller. Mm -hmm. uh, the same is the case with uh, women marathon runners. Um, in 1960, 61, when women started running the marathon, they were three hours behind the fastest man. The fastest woman was three hours behind the fastest man. And if you looked at the Chicago Marathon, uh, what, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, uh, the fastest woman set a new world record for women, but she was 11 minutes behind the fastest man. Only 11. Only 11 minutes. So there, there was a change of something, an extraordinary change. Men have gotten faster. 
they've increased their speed by about 15 minutes in the marathon. That is 15 minutes less. But women have, have really so projected. So projecting from those ratios, what, in what year will the woman actually exceed <laughs> in the male? About three or four speed. years, they're going to be running faster than the males. Uh -huh. But there, you would think that ought to be a deep uh, sexual difference, a dimorphic difference between this, the sexes. Uh -huh. But now it's it's. Are you suggesting, Bob, if I come back in a couple hundred years' time, the women are going to try and pick me up? Uh, Michael, but not now, now nor then will they try God. to pick you I, up. I was born before my time. <laughs> well, it is interesting if you come back to sexual behavior and sexual uh, preference and the degree to which one seeks multiple rather than uh, partners rather than a single partner, that we do have, as anthropologists have made clear, in a few societies in the world, clear evidence of what um, they call polyandry, that is single wife and multiple husbands. But these are very peculiar societies where, for instance, it's very difficult uh, to survive and, for instance, where you have to have two or three men working the land. The, the classic mm. case, of course, is Tibet where Tibet. they practice polyandry. Yeah. But those Tibetans who left when the Chinese moved in and moved down to India, None of them practice polyandry. But I can match you society for society. Another society in which classically polyandry was the system was uh, the Marquesas in Polynesia, which is a very, um, a very benign and pleasant and kind of low effort uh, requiring culture. It lasted until the French came along with Catholic missionaries and virtually destroyed that society by condemning polyandry and making it illegal. Well, I'm not going to argue with a social scientist because you can always come back with something <laughs> even more bizarre than a philosopher ever dreamed of. I suppose. But um, isn't this just an example in which uh, culture can, in fact, change uh, biological sure, preferences? Surely it is. Then. Uh, but yeah. not probably change them very deeply or for very long so that men in prison, notoriously, although they're heterosexual, they engage in homosexual behavior because that's what the environment would... Uh, Mm -hmm. the only outlet that they might have in that environment. And well, there are many other cases like well, that. Well, the example I like is the women's lib movement in the 70s, where a lot of women went off to do their own thing, left their families, etc. So what happened to the guys who were left behind? They married younger women. And it's it, so often what you see now is biology reasserting itself. So you're getting that same, you know, what is it, serial polygyny rather than just you know, having a number of wives all at the same time. So I'm not convinced. I mean, I think you're right, Bob. But I have a feeling that biology is pretty sneaky, and after four and a half billion years, or three and a half billion years, I expect it to be pretty sneaky and look after itself, despite what well, we want to do. This is one of those few questions in which we do agree about the, the answer, but I think, no, you're, you're right, this, that culture can manipulate us, can change us, uh, but if it's a deeply rooted biological trait that is being coerced, then probably in due course it is going to... Uh, right itself, as it were. One of the great objections to evolutionary theory, given by people who are not uh, uh, fundamentalism-based creationists, but still doubters, Philip Johnson, the law professor out in California, who's been on this program once mm -hmm. with you, uh, Bob, uh, would uh, uses this argument as, and he, he got it from others who've used it before, is there uh, organ systems which are just so complex one cannot understand how they might have evolved. Uh, uh, variation by variation by variation. Rather, they look as if they were designed. And his case in point is the eye. The human eye, particularly, though the same sort of eye is to be found in uh, most mammalian forms. And uh, that has to have been somehow constructed rather than merely evolved, uh, argues Johnson. Uh, that needs accounting, that needs 
response. I know that Dawkins has handled that very question, particularly with regard to the eye. But uh, uh, is a designer necessary as one conjures uh, possible scenarios for the evolution of particularly complex organ systems? And I would like to press on with that important uh, and still lingering question uh, right after we pause, as we will for some commercials and then a quick update on the evening's news. And the two guests who have joined me tonight in this broad discussion on evolutionary theory and evolutionary science are Michael Roos and Robert Richards. Michael Roos, professor of the history and philosophy of science at Florida State University, and Robert Richards, professor of the history and philosophy of science at the University of Chicago. Both of them have uh, worked for many years in elucidating and in uh, further tracking the development of evolutionary theory itself. Uh, I guess what I was putting before you a moment ago before those commercials is the argument by design, which is one of the more sophisticated uh, counters to evolutionary theory. It couldn't have just happened by accident or by natural selection. There's so much design, so much intricate coordination between many different parts to produce the desired effect in the human eye, or should we say in the lungs, or should we say in the brain, but stay with the eye for a minute, that it cannot merely have evolved. It was designed. Uh, by a designer, and that brings God, or something like God, back into the conversation. Well, you, you know, you, you slipped in a sort of a weasel phrase there when you were describing it, and you said one of the most effective counters to uh, evolution. Uh, first of all, I don't think it necessarily follows that because you accept the argument of design that you're necessarily going to reject evolution. I, th I think it's pretty clear that Darwin himself, when he discovered evolutionary theory, when he discovered uh, natural mm -hmm. selection, believed in the argument from design and probably did right through the writing of The Origin. Later in life, I think he became an agnostic, but I, I don't think there was any question then he's, except uh, the two. You days. mean then that his thought would have been that uh, God set the whole thing going? God, oh, God sets the whole thing going, and God works through unbroken law rather than through miracle. And Darwin mm -hmm. would have said, why not? And, of course, it wasn't just Darwin, but people after Darwin, including religious people. I mean, now, you're quite true that there are some who said either design or evolution, but not both. But there were, there were quite a few people, not just quite a few people, lots of people who wanted to say you can have both. And, and of course, that's also the case today. I mean, the present pope, uh, John Paul II, obviously accepts design. I mean, he's, he, he accepts Thomistic theology, and uh, so he certainly accepts design, and yet he says, I've got no problem with evolution, as long as you, well, as long as you give me immortal souls, which are not a scientific concept anyway, um, you know, you can have evolution and design. So it's a false dichotomy in the minds of a lot of religious people that you, it's got to be one or the other, but not both. Now, you're right to point to the creationists or people like Bob's friend um, Philip Johnson uh, who argue for intelligent design and they want to say it's, you know, if you accept the one, you, you can't accept the other. But, you know, you said, but of course we can't see how natural selection could have done it. But you were the one who mentioned Richard Dawkins just before the break. Mm -hmm. I mean, Richard Dawkins says, you know, we should, you know, we may be too stupid to think of how it was done, but we shouldn't think that natural selection is that stupid. But, but they're, they're good examples, too. Um, first of all, just as a qualification of what Michael said, I think he's basically right, one of those few occasions in which that's the case. But that um, Darwin, when he confronted the case of the perfection of the eye and how, how to explain it, did want to say that he could give a natural selection account that is the most proximate causes producing uh, such a complex organism as the eye can be explained uh, appealing to natural principles.
And what a modern evolutionary theorist would say is, look, you can find antecedents of the mammalian eye among a lot of invertebrate creatures and other creatures in which you can see how the various parts of the eye were initially came together, well, they, they came initially seriatim, that is, one at a time, how they interacted with one another, and so you can follow up the construction of the eye really through an examination in comparative anatomy. So it, it's, the eye is very complex, that's certainly the case, but it doesn't preclude a, a kind of analysis of this sort. I suppose to just choose one aspect of structural change which might, uh, mm -hmm. uh, might clarify what you've been saying. Uh, certain eyes, certain eyes at lower levels of animal life, don't focus as well as the mammalian eye does. Uh, That's certainly true, and even in very so what, primitive what, worms, what, you just have light-sensitive cells. So what, what might have happened to produce uh, the muscles which uh, alter the whatever it is uh, in the um, in the cornea or in the eyeball, so as to adjust to distance and get a properly refracted and precise image? What well, would have happened by accident, so to speak, which then had selective value? Well, certainly this didn't happen overnight, whatever. No, it happened, happened over millions of years. There, exactly so. But you have, you have eyes that can't focus. Uh, you have eyes in which the corneal surface is, can move slightly. Mm -hmm. So that there are various ways in which um, the various media of the eye uh, and other organisms are differently constructed. So it's not impossible to imagine, and you probably—I don't know the details of this—but uh, examples of eyes which are approaching the structure of our eye, i.e., with a movable lens, um, and you can see what the advantages are. The advantages are quite clear: that you can focus your eye, you can see things close up, and you th can see things at a distance. You can see dangers coming. You can see dangers coming quite easily. Yes. But don't forget, Bob. I mean, well, you wouldn't disagree on this. I mean, one shouldn't necessarily judge everything by the mammalian eye and particularly by the, the human eye because this uh, we've got a very efficient eye doesn't follow that other organisms necessarily want an eye which is as efficient as ours for doing various things i mean you know the, the supposition is that you know we were primates we lived in a 3d situation in in trees that sort of thing we not only needed 3d vision we needed color and things like this i mean for instance if you're a primate which lives at night and just comes, or not just a primate, but a, a mammal which lives mainly at night, then maybe color is nothing like as important to you as, as it is to, to, to primates which are daytime animals. Let me turn to another source of controversy, and there is a central figure associated with that controversy. It is uh, Stephen Gould, who uh, passed away only a few months ago, also appeared on this program, and in fact I knew him in other connections because we were on a particular board together. Uh, but. Uh, I suppose he's not the only one who put forward his kind of punctuated equilibrium uh, hypothesis, though that was his particular terminology, I think. What was Gould's challenge? How has it been uh, received, and, received and, 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 responded? and responded to? I think initially it was an innovative hypothesis, which uh, a lot of um, biologists, evolutionary biologists, paleontologists took seriously. Uh, what Gould maintained was that species change did not occur gradually as Darwin had suggested. Darwin thought that it was over vast periods of time that there would be slow modifications of species so that at the end of time they would look much differently than they did earlier on. Now what Gould maintained is among species that there would be P 
periods of great stability where little change would occur at all, and then there would be rather rapid change in speciation and alteration. The, the rapid change of, that he had in mind was in paleontological time, so a rapid change of 100,000 years. So while Darwin had in mind hundreds of thousands of years for gradual change, what Gould would maintain is that over depending on the species, a long period of time, 100,000, 200,000 years, and then within 10,000 or 20,000 years, there would be a kind of rapid change. So that was the original thesis. Um, there was some, it, it would account for, as it were, the character of the geological deposit and the paleontological deposit, that there would seem to be gaps and there would seem to be leaps made uh, if you simply looked at the rocks. In essence, uh, great leaps forward. Or great great leaps sideways, which didn't, which don't work out in terms of natural selection. That's true, but well, that's, that's the point. I mean, you brought up natural selection. I'm sure the next thing Bob's going to say is that Gould, having started with his paleontological theory of jumps, then said, and as Bob pointed out, then maybe this, these jumps were not controlled as tightly by natural selection as a Darwinian would have thought, mm -hmm. and that maybe we've got to look for, as Bob was saying in the last hour randomness or something of this nature. And I think he went on in his latest book to talk about species selection as being that mechanism by which this occurs. Now I think almost nobody among evolutionary biologists think that species selection is going to be the way to understand uh, the development in, of, of species over time. And I think too there's been a kind of accommodation of uh, both the scientific community to Gould's view and Gould to the scientific community, and mostly I think <laughs> Steve had to give up an awful lot of those notions. But what did he put in? What, uh, what aspect of his model uh, has in fact become more or less consensual? Um, I think no aspects have become no. consensual. I, I, no, I, I, I think to be fair that people would say we've got to look at the fossil record a lot more carefully uh, than we did before and not necessarily assume that gaps are just reflections of lost data. They may well be, but at least it's worth floating the hypothesis that but, we got but that's That's a meager return but, for uh, okay, a great fair, intellectual well, investment, right. saying we have to be more careful. <laughs> no, I, I agree. No, I mean, the, the simple fact of the matter is Steve was a brilliant science writer. Like a lot of us, he also wanted to be, you know, a paradigm uh, what shall I say, the author of a new paradigm. And the, I think for a while he thought he was on a roll and it was going to work out, and frankly it didn't. But he's not the first one to have that happen. Mm. It's just, it happened a lot more publicly in his case. Now then, we've reached the point where it is time once again to pause for some commercials, but also to invite telephone calls, and for that matter, email. So we're opening the lines right now for your questions, your contributions, and... Uh, the number as ever is 591-7200, 591-7200. If you are listening um, far away, and particularly for listeners on the Internet on other continents, uh, and you want to reach us, then the way to do that is via email. The email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720, one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591 7200. Get your questions and contributions in right now, if you would, because we hope to go to them directly after we pause for this. And we return directly to Robert Richards and Michael Roos, both of them professors of the history and philosophy of science, and particularly focused upon that uh, broad construction within science, which is evolutionary theory. 
591-7200 is the number. Uh, we have one or two lines still available. We've been screening rather closely, as we do on uh, programs of this sort. So if you have not uh, been able to get through, try again, and you may very well succeed. 591-7200. And you are on the air. Good evening. Hi. I would appreciate your guest's comments on a book by a, I believe he's a molecular biologist. His name is Michael Behe. His book is Darwin's Black Box. It takes the intelligent design argument down to the molecular biological level in which um, the notion is not complexity per se, but a concept of what he calls irreducible complexity being a block to uh, evolutionary mechanisms. His analogy was that a, uh, a mousetrap could not have evolved because it contains certain elements of design that are irreducibly complex. That is, there's the base of the mousetrap, there's the spring, there's the hammer, and there's the trip. And without all these pieces occurring simultaneously, uh, no mice would be captured. It's not a case of uh, progressive efficiency. You summarize the argument uh, uh, effectively. Let's get an effective response. Thank well, you. first of all, if mousetraps had to spring into existence in their present form, it would be truly miraculous. They would need a designer. But if you think about the evolution of mousetraps, uh, you can st you start with presumably um, a box that might be held up by a stick and somebody waits for an animal uh, to go under it. You pull the stick out, you've trapped the animal. Well, then you can put a bait there. Just don't wait for the animal. Lure the animal. Put bait tied to the stick. Let the animal, as he pulls the bait away, release the stick. You can uh, construct, and it has been constructed, uh, a series of mechanisms that lead up to the construction of the mousetrap. So it, for that, that's not a very helpful, I think, example. And most molecular biologists are perfectly confident that uh, Behe's arguments are uh, hardly avail. Well, you know, let me just say that, that um, Behe's book is very entertainingly written. He's a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University, and I imagine he must be a terrific undergraduate teacher. So I can see why this book has been as popular as it has been, why it's had the success. But as Bob says, I mean, it's, there's a difference between something being very seductive at the undergraduate level and something actually working. I mean, apart from anything else, it seems to me that Behe mm -hmm has some very odd ideas about evolution. I mean, to argue that every part must be exactly as it is right now, otherwise it couldn't have been done by natural selection. I mean, maybe, for instance, uh, some of the things which, sure, if you remove something now would break down, maybe they came into existence piggybacking on other things which have since been removed. I mean, it would be rather like, for instance, if you wanted to build a a bridge from stones without without cement and you started up the two sides and then start to bring it into the middle you keep falling down you'd say it's impossible but because it's not impossible what you do is you build a mound uh, in the middle and then you put the stones on the mound the bridge stays in place you take the mound out and the bridge is up there and I, I don't see why evolution shouldn't work that way uh, as well as any other and not only that at the molecular level you have examples of evolution occurring every day drug resistance is such an example it changes the molecular structure of the pathogens that become resistant to drugs so no, you, have, his, you have counter examples but I, I think his argument was that there are uh, certain hurdles that are created by his uh, concept of uh, irreducible complexity 
that make the random incremental natural selection types of uh, uh, drives to change, uh, that there's a, an, an insurmountable chasm in, in his analysis. And I, I just wanted to get your reactions, and if you can refer to any <laughs> critique. You, you, you've certainly gotten the reactions. Yeah, uh, yeah, I have, and I thank you. We thank you, sir, for the call. 591-7200 is the number, and you are next on the air. Good evening. Good evening, uh, Dr. Miltz and guest. Uh, how does the the dinosaurs are probably the best example, but my understanding is that there's been at least six or seven mass extinction events, whether through comet or meteor. How does that is that the driving force of evolution, or how greatly does it influence it if it's not the, the driving force? Well, uh, is it not the case that one point that can be made and is universally accepted by all those who are competent to think about these things is that, but for that uh, meteoric uh, event which uh, exterminated the dinosaurs and lots of other larger life forms, uh, the, field for action, the field of action would not have been cleared and we probably would not have evolved. I think that's the general presumption that these kinds of mass extinctions uh, clear, as it were, niches in the in ecology and open them up for possibilities of um, the flourishing of different kinds of organisms, and you're, you're right, so that uh, there were mammals around, very small rodent-like mammals. They were trivial. During, yeah, during yeah. the age of the dinosaurs, and perhaps with the elimination of the dinosaurs, uh, this allowed for the proliferation and development and, and evolution of such animals. I don't forget, though, that today people don't think that the dinosaurs all went extinct. It's just that we don't call them dinosaurs anymore. We call them birds. So, uh, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, at one level the extinctions are obviously very, very important. And they, as you say, they, they clear the ground and make lots of opportunity for other things happening. Uh, I had a fellow on here once who, in fact, did uh, specializes in the study of the origin of birds and made that point. Where is the morphological similarity between birds, between a, between a, a little robin and a brontosaurus? Well, don't they both have wishbones? Isn't that one thing I thought? That we, whereas other reptiles don't, for instance. Um, that's a start. <laughs> um, the, the brains are, are, are much more similar, I think, than with other reptiles, once again. I mean, there are other characteristics like that. Yeah, and, and, and certainly what we think of as primitive dinosaurs or reptiles, Archaeopteryx, for example, uh, displayed feathers. And there was the start one presumes of the origin of the birds, dinosaurs that had, for various reasons, uh, feather coverings, um, and um, flight was not far behind. And would there have been an advantage for the smallest of the dinosaurs to survive, whereas the others perished? Well, I presume, you, again, you can, the problem with this is that it is really highly speculative about what the, what the pressures and mechanisms were that that supported and advanced certain kinds of adaptations. And in the case of the dinosaurs, you can imagine that sort of escaping from predators, hopping very fast, mm -hmm. uh, if the feathers, which I think it's mostly presumed that they were insulation initially, uh, gave them any kind of lift. I mean, flying squirrels, for example, are a good instance of a rodent that has, in fact, taken to the air uh, to escape predators, to move easily within the, its own environment. So something like that was likely the When you speak as you just did, you are committing the, as you know, the error of teleology. You say flying squirrels uh, develop their ability to fly so as to escape rodents. Yeah. Uh, so what's wrong with teleology? <laughs> well, isn't it the case that those who had that capacity to fly 
were able to survive, whereas their landlocked or land-based uh, cousins could not. Well, I, uh, this could is not certainly escape. a shorthand explanation of what occurred. Yeah. I think. Well, you, no, I mean, there, there's, do you seriously there's, ask what's wrong with teleology? Well, first of all, if, if teleology has many different Let's meanings. It. Well, one is that uh, organisms have traits for purposes, and it's certainly true that we have traits for purposes. We have eyes for seeing, we have hearts, hearts for circulating the blood, but as you point out, what the usual account of this is, that through some variation, uh, an accidental variation, had a function. It turned out to have yeah. a function, and that was built upon. Whereas so. the standard teleological uh, line is uh, a function, a, a structure was developed because it because, because that there was some was kind of need ahead of time exactly. that was that yeah. was realized. Now, by I mean that. That, that that of course was the sort of position that that the, that the vitalists had at the beginning of the 20th century. I really don't think that Bob was suggesting that, or or these days any science. In fact, that's pretty close to the error of Lamarckianism, is it not? Well, so I, I, I would, I personally would argue that 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 Lamarck himself. I don't know whether it was his Lamarckism uh, that did this, but I would certainly myself argue that that Lamarck was a vitalist, although certainly others would disagree on this. Mm -hmm. uh, let me read you um, an email that's come in. I've often heard it said from the corner of those assailants of standard evolutionary theory that the central thesis of Darwinism, to wit, the transformist hypothesis has never been scientifically established, but persists only as an assumption. It cannot, they say, be doubted that microevolutionary transformations do occur in nature, as in the case of the Galapagos mockingbird, but that a macroevolutionary transformation has ever occurred has yet to be established. Is such, in fact, the case? Well, the Galapagos mockingbirds, what we discovered from the, those mockingbirds, uh, they're different species. They have evolved. There was an original founder species. They have evolved into several species. So to say that macroevolution hasn't occurred, I don't know what more could be asked for. Namely, these are good species that did not initially exist, but as the result of their particular environment and under certain kinds of population pressures, uh, they speciated in the three different kinds. So there's macroevolution. Another good, there's, there's some fine examples that everyone can appreciate of macroevolution. If you, t if imagine 100,000 years from now, and presuming that um, all recorded history has been lost, but you found in the rocks paleontological remains of a Chihuahua and a Great Dane. Now, would you say that these were of the same species? And I think you would not say that they're the same species. They're so morphologically different. But yet we know how they have evolved. They have evolved through selective pressures over time on a antecedent organism. Who invented the Chihuahua? Do we know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it surely, surely, I mean... A society matron living in New York in the 1920s. <laughs> surely, I mean, your correspondent is right if, if what he or she is saying is no one has ever seen, let us say, a horse evolve from, let us say, a dog-like creature or something like that. But I think that now what's being slipped in is that unless we actually see this occur, evolution is just a theory or an assumption. But of course, that's, 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 the, that's the problem. I mean, what an evolutionist would say is that we've got indirect circumstantial evidence. Now, of course, if your correspondent says, ah, yes, but it's just circumstantial evidence, what I think an evolutionist, what I would certainly say is, but sometimes we prefer circumstantial evidence to eyewitness testimony. I mean, in a rape case, which would you take more seriously, DNA evidence or an eyewitness? I mean, the DNA evidence? Depends upon time. whether, uh, well, 
the significance given to DNA evidence, and not in the case of rape, but say in the case of murder, depends very much on what city you try the case. Uh, in in Los Angeles, it doesn't hold up very well. Does it? <laughs> All right. And, well. In most in most aspects of contemporary science, we don't have direct observational evidence for the kinds of activities and uh, entities that we assert. So at the subatomic level, we don't see the uh, particles that form the nucleus of an atom, for instance, but we infer the existence of that, and we have good inference uh, reasons for doing so. A crude basic macroevolutionary question, which I mean to pose just again as we pause for some commercials, but then we will return, and I look forward to your answer. As we look forward to more telephone calls, the lines remain open. The number, 591-7200, 591-7200. A number of lines are available again, so if you want to reach us with a question or a comment, move quickly. That question, which I want to put on the agenda for a moment, is um, macroevolutionary in scope. Uh, what is the end of the line, or the end of our line? Are we the end, or will there be further evolved species uh, taking off from Homo sapiens sapiens? We will return, and I trust address that in related matters after we pause for these words. And we return to Robert Richards and to Michael Roos uh, of, respectively, the... Um, uh, University of Chicago and Florida State University, both of them uh, students of the history and philosophy of science, and both of them uh, long interested in a particular realm in science, namely evolution and genetic theory as that links to evolution. Uh, are we the end of the line, is the question I was raising a moment ago, or can we imagine that there will be further species ultimately, how many, or, or far away from now, what would that be? five million years, or does it have to be about a half a billion years, uh, which will be descended from man, but not Homo sapiens at all? Well, I, you know, to a certain extent, I think there's an odor of that teleology we were talking about uh, just before the break. And I think the assumption uh, that I think a lot of people have is give it another million or two and we'll all be going around with much bigger brains and, you know, backs which don't break down. I, th I, I, I don't think any evolutionist alive today would say that that's going to happen. Um, why, why would they not? Because there's no, no reason to suggest that we are being selected uh, for more intelligence at the moment. There's no evidence to suggest that the more intelligent people the super-intelligent brains are those who have more, more offspring than others. Um, so, as I say, I don't think anybody would argue that. Having said that, I think that uh, every evolutionist today would say, obviously, evolution is going on. I mean, new mutations are being poured into the gene pool all the time. Uh, anybody who says there's no selection occur occurring, I mean, is just, I mean, very, what shall I say, Eurocentric, very North American-centric. I mean, obviously natural selections going on in poorer parts of the world. I mean, AIDS, I, I pre one presumes, is, is a pretty strong selective agent uh, and other diseases of this kind. Now, what that would mean ultimately, who knows? But of course, this kind of question ignores the fact that we are also a cultural species and that we do control a great deal now through our culture. I mean, we were talking earlier, isn't to say that culture rules completely because it doesn't. And I mean, frankly, uh, my feeling, my personal feeling is very pessimistic at a certain level that now we've managed to uh, uh, um, build weapons of mass destruction. I think anybody who thinks, let's say, in the next uh, 20,000 years, million years, some fool somewhere isn't going to 
let off an atomic bomb and destroy us all, I think is, is a lot more hopeful about human nature than I am. So you think that Murphy's Law applies in this realm? If anything can go wrong, it will. It showed, I certainly do. And I think, I mean, there's, there's good examples of evolution going on among the hu in the human species right now, at least the, the Euro uh, pop population and the American population, <laughs> i.e., selection pressures have been reduced, say, on eyesight because we have artificial means of enhancing eyesight. So there is, you know, in 10,000 years ago, those who had poor eyesight walked off cliffs and their genes were removed from the gene pool. Now there is no such selective pressure. Consequently, one can well imagine a lot of variation in eyesight and that almost it's the case now that uh, we all wear glasses at one time or another. And don't forget also another thing is you've got a lot of racial interbreeding. Um, I don't know whether one would want to say that we actually got to the stage of being different subspecies, but certainly whatever the, the level was. I mean, what is it? The University of California at Irvine has 60% Asian, and the amount of interracial dating which is going on there is, is really quite phenomenal. So it's clearly, I mean, whether we're all going to be Tiger Woods, you know, in a couple of hundred years' time, I'm not sure, but certainly that's another area where evolution of, of, of one kind or another is occurring. With that, gentlemen, let us go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero, the number, and you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. Yes, sir. Um, I want to make a comment that um, when I have uh, discussions with my friends many times about um, survival of fittest, um, there I know the connotation a lot of the survival of fittest is strength, and you guys kind of talked about it earlier. That um, it's always thought about as physical physical strength, you know, some kind where in fact many times um, it's the weaknesses, some kind of weakness in a species that makes them, you know, uh, survive as opposed to a physical strength. And one example I give is um, a horrible disease like sickle, um, sickle cell anemia, where nobody would think sickle cell anemia is a strength, but yet in Africa, um, if you have that disease and you get malaria, you survive. Um, you get sick, but survive, but with, um, without it, you'll die. And uh, that's um, that's natural selection over all these years. Is there other examples like that um, that your guests know about? Well, there's certainly uh, examples of um, uh, individuals, both animals and, and humans, and this is a case, that I guess, of sexual dimorphism, where um, beauty uh, might be one of those traits that are exhibited, or at least whatever attracts the opposite sex would be a trait that is not necessarily a trait of strength, but one that simply the, uh, the opposite sex of a given species uh, admires and likes and therefore mates with and they have offspring. So that in this case, it's uh, a, a trait that is not one of strength, but one that simply gives an advantage, namely the, uh, those of greater beauty are selected for, they produce offspring with similar traits. Interesting. Um, Thanks, well, okay. I was just about to say that's a particularly interesting case that you mentioned, uh, the sickle cell case. It, yeah. Of course, it's not quite true that it's the people with sickle cell anemia who are resistant to malaria. What it is is those who are carrying one gene for it and one regular gene, the so-called heterozygotes rather than the homozygotes, they are the people who have a a, a, a natural immunity to, to malaria. Now, whether or not there are many other cases of, of balanced superior heterozygote fitness 
uh, I mean, there are many other cases. Whether or not many, there are many other cases in human beings, of course, is a matter of some debate. I mean, one rather contentious suggestion has been that maybe homosexuality is kept in the species this way. I mean, what is it? The, the rate that the number of, of male homosexuals or male humans who are exclusively homosexual is anything up to five percent or more, which is a from a biological point of view, looks like a pretty heavy-duty genetic handicap. I'm, notice I'm using the word genetic mm. handicap. I'm not in any sense suggesting that homosexuals are less fit or less decent or anything than anybody else. But why would this occur? And possibly it's because their siblings who've got one gay gene and one non-gay gene are, are super reproducers, not necessarily in our society, in earlier societies. I, w I would argue on the basis of social data and historical material that um, it doesn't quite work that way. You find many societies in which uh, there is virtually no homosexuality as an identity, as a lifelong pattern. In fact, though homosexual publicists and theorists often argue that the uh, Greek example, particularly the Athenian example, uh, demonstrates the presence of homosexuality at the very birth of our great Western culture, so it's a universal and was always there. That turns out simply not to be the case at all. There was homosexual practice, but it was definitely a transitional behavior uh, which uh, gave way to uh, heterosexual marriage. Yes, but Milt, you know, I mean, even with the Greeks, I mean, you're right. I mean, there may not have been people who were identified as gay rather than straight, but there were some people who were fairly clearly of a homosexual identity and others who weren't. I mean, as best we know, Plato had a homosexual identity. Now, whether he thought of himself as a gay man or, or whatever, but he was, whereas well, Aristotle wasn't. Well, you're basing that, I suppose, on the dialogue, uh, the symposium. Well, not just the symposium, but others, as Carmides and others, of course, yeah. where Plato makes. But I mean, his whole sort of identity. Uh, you know, a historian called John Boswell, who's been dead of AIDS now for ten years yes. or more, looked into this issue quite, quite, quite carefully, and he, he, I mean, he agrees. I mean, that to talk about a homosexual identity is 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 a late twentieth-century term, and maybe it wasn't until the nineteenth century mm. that people became sort of self-consciously homosexually identified in that way. Well, but Boswell argues very strongly that people certainly thought of themselves as gay and pretty much exclusively gay before then. Well, he argues that, but uh, he's been subject to much criticism from historians for having um, got it wrong and possibly even fudged some of the data. But, you know, more I don't want to turn <laughs> well, this... You know, what do I say to that? I mean, okay, go Well, I just want to mention right. the work of one other person, which is relevant, and I'm sure you know his work, Sir Kenneth Dover. Yeah, who, uh, yeah. in his book on Greek homosexuality, demonstrates, if you are to believe what's on uh, Greek urns and the, the pictorial representation of sexual behavior, that the typical homosexual act was what he calls intracrural homosexuality, which doesn't involve any kind of penetration at all. Well, he says that's what the ideal was, but he says, you know, it's, it doesn't follow that the other didn't happen. But no. you're quite right. He does point out that, that anal intercourse, for instance, amongst Greek men, would be a good cause, would be a cause for losing your citizenship exactly. and being subject to penalties. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is all a lot more complex. Well, what we do have there, clearly, at least, if we could agree on this, is that if there is any genetic tendency, uh, social order and social uh, cultural tradition can make all sorts of things out of that Absolutely. Uh, emergent behavior. Um, I was just going to actually support you against Michael. Um, <laughs> but now, but we're, now we're settling into a typical pattern. <laughs> But uh, certainly in, in Spartan society, there is a good example of a temporary 
what we would think of as homosexual activity. The yeah. Spartan male from about age 18 through the 20s was encouraged to form love relationships with uh, other males in the military in order to form closer bonds and therefore to produce a more effective fighting force. But then at age 30, they normally went into marriage. and Exactly. Uh, so that... That was a kind of transitional period. You're perfectly right about that. I think, you know, the case of the Greeks is somewhat exaggerated because some rather famous Greeks whom we know about, namely uh, Socrates, Plato, Alcibiades, probably were indeed uh, gay, and therefore there is a, a kind of easy generalization that then in Greek society this was a prevalent kind of behavior. Well, Socrates would have to have been bisexual. He had children and he had a wife. Uh, that these are not precluded. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we pause for the usual reasons and then directly back with two additional telephone calls and, for that matter, of uh, some more email that should be read. 591-7200, a, a little room available on the board right now, and the email address extension 720 at com. And before we go back to the phones, a few words about what's on the file today. This is Milt's file which you get at our website. You get to our website by going to wgnradio.com and then clicking on my name, and that brings you to uh, our special website for extension 720. Milt's file is a set of things that we glean from the Internet and put up every day, some five or six items. The first is an item about uh, the terrible story from Minnesota about Senator Wellstone and his family. Uh, next, here's how they broke the sniper case. I read our description. This is the best account we've seen of the tracking of the sniper. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The verse from Ecclesiastes seems applicable to Mr. John A. Muhammad, who had to brag about his earlier murder. Um, and in relation to that same story, the next item, the Malvo mystery, just who is the junior partner in the D.C. area murders? And how did he get into the country and into a relationship with John Muhammad? The first and second questions are answered here by Michelle Malkin, the sharply tuned columnist who appeared on our program recently. The third question, is still unanswered. An inside view of Iraq uh, by a German journalist. This is uh, an interview from uh, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. And another item, the great Falachi, an outstanding and fiery journalist who kept quiet for the last 20 years, has emerged again and has stirred controversy as she always did. Her new book, this is Oriana Falachi we're talking about, her new book attacks the American and European left to which she once belonged uh, for its rationalization of 9-11. Many years ago, she made a memorable appearance on Extension 720. And as always, the last item is a musical find uh, from the Internet, and this one is headed, A Great Music Find. Here is a master sound file of Frank Sinatra at his peak. Among other favorites, The Lady is a Tramp, Strangers in the Night, uh, It Was a Very Good Year, uh, and Chicago. And with that, we go back to the phones, 591-7200 is the number. You are the next caller. Good evening. Hi, I have uh, three uh, subtopics, if you can fit them in. How about leveling it down to one, sir? Uh, okay. So uh, going back to Gould, I thought he was a mainstream um, evolutionary scientist, and uh, I was kind of surprised to hear that his theory was sort of disproved. And I thought a complex system like, uh, the li life in general is moves from one equilibrium to the other, equilibrium state to the other. So how was his theory disproved? Well, an interesting question. Uh, he was very prominent as somebody who took up the cudgels in battle with the creationists. And on that basis, he represents evolutionary theory uh, in a strong and solid uh, statement. But we have just gone through 
some of the variations on the general theme which he developed, and that has been largely, as you both agreed, rejected by others in the field. I think by, mostly through paleontological evidence, namely that these notions of stasis and quick change um, for those organisms in which he thought it exist, uh, they were found to be uh, gradual change and, and slow change uh, over time. And some organisms can change without leaving very much of a paleontological track. So I think the consensus among paleontologists was that the, the evidence that he has was certainly insufficient and there was no reason to change dramatically uh, the kinds of views are originally held. You've just answered a question which I have here on email. What evidence has led to the defeat of punctuated equilibrium as a viable theory? And that's what you've just been And, and the, the geneticists never liked it to begin with, so there was this kind of genetic opposition to what, him. What did the geneticists have? Well, because that there's slow, gradual, mutational change and recombination all the time, so that any selective pressures that act upon this are going to change organisms, perhaps not initially or obviously in dramatic ways, but continuously and gradually. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you... Uh, you used the word mainstream. I mean, at another level, obviously, Gould was very mainstream mm -hmm. in the sense that nobody would want to argue that he was anything but a very qualified evolutionist and very committed evolutionist, a, a qualified paleontologist, and, and all of those things. So let's let, at least keep, we must keep the discussion in, in the right context. I mean, nobody is saying that Gould was a maverick outsider that didn't deserve to be taken seriously or that you know, uh, that he's discredited as a thinker or anything like that. I mean, we're, we're talking about what are essentially technical issues in, in evolutionary theory. And to disagree at that level does not in any sense, I think, uh, downgrade somebody as, as a serious authority on evolution. Here's a simple but um, uh, interesting contribution. Uh, pardon me if you've already covered this, and you haven't, I think. I seem to recall... Uh, that the principal enablers of evolution are thought to be X-rays and cosmic rays. Uh, insofar as they produce uh, mutations? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's obviously what he means. Yeah. Well, I think that mutations obviously are, are ultimately the source that feeds uh, mu uh, change in structure. That's what uh, natural selection operates on. But probably in the shorter term, most selection operates on recombination of genes after they've a male and female have contributed to offspring, each uh, half a set of genes of the offspring, their interactions produce traits which are not exactly representative of those of the parents. And so that's probably a large, the largest part of um, the source of variability. But mutation ultimately must be. And with that, gentlemen, uh, quickly to another caller, you are on the air. Good evening. Hi, I just wanted to go back to a comment that was made a little while ago about the irreducible complexity. I teach uh, college science, and, and I find my problem with it is that I see it as the antithesis of science. It's saying, this is too hard, let's just stop studying it, let's kind of give up. And, and I just can't imagine any area of science that would, that would like that idea, any scientist that would like that idea, or even even teach it to their students because, you know, the idea of science is that if something's hard, let's just spend some more time and we can figure it out. I think that the caller has an excellent point. I mean, this stops the discussion. As soon as you say, a designer did it, then we're not going to search for any kinds of natural accounts of how that trait got to be the shape that it exhibits. 
So I think he's perfectly right. This, this simply short circuits the whole effort at scientific investigation. Thank you, sir. Uh, Thank you. Valuable contribution towards the end of the program. At the very end of the program, something we haven't really talked about, Michael, is um, ongoing research, empirical work. What are the areas of uh, investigation which really bear upon further verification or modification of the theory? Well, of course, one area is, is, is the molecular area. I mean, there's no question. I think 50 years ago when the DNA mole molecule or model was discovered, I think a lot of evolutionists and I think a lot of molecular biologists thought that this is going to be the end of evolution as we know it. Everything's going to be molecular. And of course, the answer now is not that everything's molecular. A lot of things are molecular, but we now see that molecules are a great tool and a great insight to the evolutionary process rather than rather than a um, an evil or something which is going to put evolutionists out of business one of the areas that we're seeing is a lot to do with the development of organisms and how we're now seeing the way in which uh, the dna the, the ultimate uh, blueprint of heredity is being translated into physical characteristics. We've got a lot to learn. We're learning a lot. One of the things we're learning, for instance, is the extent to which organisms use and recycle the same things over and over again. I mean, the uh, fruit flies and humans, for instance, have same gene sequences in the same order for doing the same sorts of things. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, it really, I mean, you see, this is the real wonder and amazement and exciting of science, uh, excitement of science that the intelligent design people seem to miss out on. Science is a, is a wonderful uh, testament to the human spirit. I mean, it, uh, it's not irreligious at all. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And to say, oh, well, it's all intelligent design. You know, we can't answer it to irreducible complexity. As, as Bob said, it, it's a science stopper. And that surely is heretical in the nth degree. Half a minute left. Bob Richards. Well, I, I will obviously endorse this, this conclusion that, that Michael draws. I think evolutionary biology is a complex science. It's an interesting science. One of the features of it is, in fact, the controversies that exist among scientists. There's a great deal of agreement about fundamental issues, but in all science, these kinds of controversies uh, exist. This is one of, actually, one of Steve Gould's, I think, great merits, is to stir the pot and to, if you didn't have to accept his ideas, you had to fight hard in order to refute them. Gentlemen, thank you. It's been an excellent seminar, I would say, and I've learned a good deal from it myself. Uh, and uh, you are to be complimented on your ability to translate these rather difficult matters into common speech in a way that uh, reaches, I think, uh, the minds of your listeners. Our guests have been Robert Richards, professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Chicago, and Michael Roos, who is the same at Florida State University. Some quick words about programs to come. Uh, Monday night, a colleague from the University of Chicago has been on leave for the last year, and will be on leave for the, uh, the rest of this academic year, joins us, namely Leon Kast. He's been on this program before, but more recently was appointed by the president to be the chairman of the presidential panel on bioethics. And uh, Leon Kast has just done a new book titled Life, Liberty, and the Defense of Dignity. We'll be discussing that book with him. Undoubtedly, it will bear, among other things, upon uh, the questions of st stem cell research, cloning, and so on, because those were the issues among others, that his committee was charged to examine. Tuesday night, Bill Milberg, the return of Bill Milberg, the great presidential mimic, and still other fine things to come. For now, time to get out of the way with thanks to all for listening and a cordial good night. <laughs>